0: After a year like this, I think a lot of people are looking forward and longing for Christmas, as we've already even alluded to in our service already. Uh, Just that break, people feel that they need something to take them out of the doom and gloom of sort of the everyday of of wondering what's going to happen next. And that seems to be the theme, or at least one of the themes of this year has been, well, what's next? You know, what else can go wrong? And so I think people have been a little eager to get to Christmas, something to sort of lighten the mood, if you will. Uh, people putting up decorations, especially early. I remember there was one uh, radio station out of Columbus, Indiana, that was playing Christmas music, I think in June I heard it. And uh, the very reason was for this. We need a little Christmas. In fact, there's a song you might hear on the radio that says, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. And maybe that's what people are feeling. It's interesting, by the way, that that song was actually originally a number from a 1966 Broadway musical. And the musical has mostly been forgotten, but that one song, We Need Christmas, kind of stuck around. It's interesting, so I looked it up. In the Broadway musical, it's set in the 1920s, right around the stock market crash of 1929. And the main character of the musical loses all of her investments and all of her fortune on the stock market crash. And right after that event, they sing the song, We need a little Christmas right this very minute. We need something to sort of lighten the mood. Give us something to celebrate amongst all the bleakness. And that's, I think, how people are feeling this year. It's a a year that's been a mire of despondency and despair. And we're always wondering, what's next? But for those who know the true meaning of Christmas, it's more than just a holiday that can cheer us from an otherwise dreary, kind of downcast year. The birth of Christ is the very hope of, and joy of the Christian life. Decorations, a Christmas tree, a little bit of tinsel, yeah, it might lighten your mood for a few seconds, but it's not going to give you everlasting joy. Only Christ can do that. And so when we stop and think about Christmas, it's more than just, let's have a good time, let's sort of, Put up some decorations. Let's get in a cheerful mood. It's about looking to the hope that we have. The hope that transcends even a bad year. See, only Christ can lift the darkness that hangs over our world. And I'm not just talking about a pandemic. There's a a pervasive darkness, widespread, more deadly than coronavirus. Talking about the effects of sin. In fact, coronavirus, we could say, is just one of the many effects. Of sin in our world. That's the darkness that Jesus came to address. That's the light of hope that comes from Christmas. Is not just a little pick me up, but it is the hope that we have—the the only hope we have—from the darkness of sin. And that's why I want us to look at Isaiah chapter nine this morning. Now, my original plan had been to spend three weeks on Isaiah chapter nine, just the first seven verses. But then I got quarantined last week, and so it all kind of got compressed. So basically, you're getting three sermons in one. And I don't know if you feel like that's a good deal or you're wanting to run for the door, but either way, I'm going to try and move quickly because there's so much to cover. But one of the challenges we have, when you, especially when you look at Isaiah, is it's hard to wrap your head around it and kind of getting into the context of it. Because Isaiah is such a huge book, and there's so much going on in Isaiah. So I want to try and summarize and at least get us, kind of get us our head in that space, if you will, of the first few chapters of Isaiah. So we know the call of Isaiah comes in chapter six. There's this magnificent scene where the Lord appears to Isaiah and calls him into the ministry. It's a dramatic scene. And then immediately following is chapters seven through nine. Now, Isaiah prophesied through the eras of at least three. Uh, There's a few other kings that fit in there, but the three big ones are Ahaz, or Uzziah, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. Now, during all three of those kings, the major threat to Israel came from Assyria, a country far to the north, a, a major empire that was known for their cruelty and their wickedness. And they were always sort of The the dark cloud that hung over Israel. What are the Assyrians doing? What danger do they pose? And so the first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, kind of centers around two crises that happen that involve the Assyrians. The first is in chapters 7 through 9, during the days of Ahaz. The second one happens in chapters 36 to 39, during the days of Hezekiah. Those are the two big crises. Now, this first one in chapters 7 through 9 is really a crisis of trust. King Ahaz is on the throne and, and he's experiencing pressure. There are enemies mounting up. And the question is Ahaz, who will you trust? Will you look to the Lord for your help? Or, as he was considering, would he look to Assyria, their sworn enemies? He was considering making a treaty with them in order to protect them from some of these other enemies. So in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he warns him and says, Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in man. In fact, I'll give you a sign, which Ahaz rejects. But the sign is actually the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. And there's a whole interesting conversation we could have about that the point is all through chapters seven through nine are woven this hope that Israel has their future hope. A great king is coming. Unfortunately, Ahaz does not trust in the Lord. He rejects Isaiah's message. And so Isaiah prophesies in chapter eight, destruction and gloom and darkness are coming. Since Ahaz, you have rejected the word of the Lord. There's going to be disaster. And you can read about that in chapter eight. Though, at the end of chapter 8, a a glimmer of light appears. And as we enter into chapter 9, that light is going to grow. There is a hope, even in dark, dark times. And that's why I thought this was such an appropriate place to go. Because I think many would say, these days, in our time, in our place in history, these are some dark times. Whether it's the pandemic, or whether it's... uh, major changes and shifts in worldview and in government and so on. These are really unusual and unusually dark times for a lot of people. Well, the light that comes is the light of Christ. And I want us to look at this passage. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And I want to lay them out like this. We're going to look first at the gloom of darkness. The gloom of darkness, which appears right at the beginning Look at verse one, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. So verses 1 and 2 introduce us to this gloom of darkness. And really this connects back to the previous chapter. Listen to where chapter 8 ends. Chapter 8, verse 21. They will be hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall be happen when they are hungry, they will be in, enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. It's a pretty discouraging picture, isn't it? That Israel is just going to be encompassed in darkness. They're going to be trodden over by their enemies. Where's hope going to come? What light is there in this dark situation? It seems none at all. Then chapter 9 begins. Talks about darkness here and gloom. Now, that gloom will eventually turn into glory in this chapter. But we could say the same thing about our times, right? This gloom of darkness, this kind of overshadowing spiritual despair and hopelessness that overshadow many people. Where's all this headed? Well, what, none of this makes sense to me. In fact, even many believers are feeling a sense of despair and well, what's going on in our world. Listen to what David F. Wells in his book, Above All Earthly Powers, writes. He says this, in the very moment of social conquest, he's talking about now, when science and technology are promising to rewrite the script of life, to eliminate more and more disease, to make life more bearable, to fill it with more goods. At that very moment, the human spirit was sagging beneath the burden of emptiness, do you think that sounds like a good description of our age? Sagging under the burden of emptiness. Hopelessness. Spiritual darkness. As we look at this chapter, the darkness is what we first see. This enveloping gloom. And it's both physical and spiritual. Let's look at it. First of all, we want to see the physical condition of Galilee. Because that's what this prophecy is directed towards. He's speaking to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And right away, you'll notice that his prophecy concerns what we call the region of Galilee. This was an area in the north of Israel. If you have a little map in the back of your Bible, you can look at it. The land of Israel is a land of two seas. The Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south, and they're connected by the Jordan River. Those are the two most prominent features you'll see on a Bible map. Sea of Galilee is in the north. And that whole area was known as the area of Galilee. That's where Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes of Israel, settled. Now, Judea in the south, that's where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem, and it's not on that map, but it's far to the south. Judea was the cultural and political center of Israel. That's where all the elites lived. That's where the the priests lived. Anybody who was important in Israel wanted to live in Judea. Galilee, by contrast, was sort of the backwater. It was Redneckville. In fact, that's true today. I I lived in Galilee for a while, and it's still thought of that way. Oh, they're just a bunch of hick farmers that live up in Galilee. And what is Galilee? So, in the hill country, it's mostly desertous. It's kind of, uh, there's not a whole lot of reason to go there unless you want to be part of that elite. Galilee, in contrast, is very lush, there's a lot of good farmland. Obviously, there's lots of fishing around the Sea of Galilee. And so it attracted more of the agrarian type rather than the intellectual who tended to go down to Judea. And by the way, we see this in the Bible as well. The elites in Jerusalem looked down on Galilee. Do you remember what Nathanael said when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth? Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, no good thing comes out of Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Later on in John chapter 7, the Pharisees are told that Jesus is from Galilee and they say, look and search the scriptures. No prophet ever comes from Galilee, not from that dump. And that was the general feeling about it. It's the same feeling we have in America about various states. You know, If you live in Indiana, what do you think about people from Kentucky? And if you're from Kentucky, you make West Virginia jokes. And if you're in West Virginia, you don't really think much of people from Ohio. But if you're in Ohio, you don't really think much of people from Michigan. And round and round and round it goes, right? There's always, there's always some place. Just think about this in your own mind. Whenever you're driving down the highway or the interstate, and a car comes flying around you, and you see the light, what, what state is it that when you see the light splite, you say, oh, yeah, go figure. Okay, that, that was Galilee to the Judeans. Backwater, out of the way, nothing to see here. They were brought low. In fact, look at this in verse 1. The gloom is going to rest upon Zebulun and Naphtali, and they're the ones who are lightly esteemed. They're the ones who are humiliated and brought low. What caused this physical condition? Well, first of all, is the Assyrian conquest. And you'll see on this map, uh, the areas of... Uh, if we can go back to the map for a second. Um, there's the areas of Zebulun and Naphtali are right there. In fact, Zebulun is between the Sea of Galilee and the coast, uh, Naphtali to the north. But it's this whole area. They were brought low by the effects of the Assyrian conquest. Now, the Assyrians, I told you, were Israel's sworn enemies. And they, during one of the reigns of the Israelite kings, invaded the area of Galilee. We read about it in 1 Kings, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 15. The Bible says, In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilesar, king of Assyria, came and took Ion, Abel-Beth-Mekah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hatzor. He took Gilead and all of Galilee, including the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. So Galilee and the region of Naphtali and Zebulun were trampled over by the Assyrians. They were, in essence, humiliated by them. It's kind of the same situation of Holland and Belgium and Poland during the First Second World War. They were the first countries to fall to the Nazi regime. And so they were the first ones to be trampled underfoot by this German war machine. Well, that's, that was Galilee. They were the first to experience the, the invasion by the Assyrians. They were brought low. And, and the lands were depopulated. People were taken off as captives. So we'd see the Assyrian conquest as part of their condition, but also the anguish of the land. The anguish of the land. They've been brought low. He he lists four descriptions of this place in verse 1. He calls them the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Two of the tribes of Israel. Now, Amongst the tribes of Israel, Zebulun naturally don't get talked about very much. In fact, as I was thinking about it and preparing this message, I could not think of one single hero from the Bible or, in fact, one Bible character at all that came from either of these tribes. And so they're not ones we talk about. It's not like Judah or Benjamin. These are two mostly forgotten tribes. They, They settled in the area north, area around the Sea of Galilee. And because of that, they were right in the path of the Assyrian invaders. We also see the description in verse 1 that they were by the sea, or by the way of the sea. That probably refers to the Sea of Galilee. Interesting, though, later on, there would be a trade route which went through Galilee, out to the coast, and then down to Egypt. And that trade route was called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And so it was that same region that had been brought low. And by the way, that same Via Maris passed right through the city of Capernaum where Jesus lived and ministered and did many of his miracles. We also see, though, that it's beyond the Jordan. So it's this whole region on both sides of the Jordan River. It's also called Galilee of the Gentiles in verse 1. Galilee of the Gentiles. It's called that because... Galilee was right next door to their Gentile neighbors. Unlike Judea in the south, which was more pure, you could say, because they weren't hemmed in by Gentiles all around. In fact, if you were a Judean Jew, you may not have even known any Gentiles. But if you lived in Galilee, that's where the two sides met. That was sort of the front lines. And so Galilee was very mixed population. Probably one of the reasons why the southern Jews looked down on them. Because they weren't as pure. So they rub shoulders every day with Gentiles. It's interesting that the light he's about to talk about. The light that is coming is going to shine in a place where the Gentiles are. It's already hinting at the idea that the light is not just for Israel. It's for all people. We'll say more about that in a little bit. Because there's more to this picture of darkness. Darkness. It's not just physical. In fact, one author says it like this. The darkness of the northern area was spiritual, moral, social, and political. So this darkness is not just, oh, the land had a hard time, and so now God's going to bless them by sending the light. It's also a spiritual darkness. See, we can make two mistakes here. On one hand, we can say... This is, the darkness is just political, it's just physical. In which case, we've made the same mistake that the Pharisees made. Well, all we need is political deliverance. We don't need to be saved from sin and, and, and all the despair and the, the hopelessness and wickedness. Our problem is physical, not spiritual. However, we can also err on the other side and say, oh, this is only Spiritual. Well, it's, it's happening in the land of Naphtali, in the land of Zebulun. And so it's both a spiritual darkness and a physical one. So I talk here about the spiritual condition of man. It's not only about the physical condition of Galilee, but the spiritual condition of that place. All people. Look at verse 2. The, Bi- the Bible says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined gives us a bit of a description here of this darkness. We'll talk about the light in a moment. But I want us to see that this darkness is still with us today. How does he describe this darkness? Well, first of all, the spiritual condition of man is, in fact, darkness. You notice that the Bible, not just here but throughout, uses this image of darkness and light, darkness and light. And darkness, here, as it's used, is talking about the situation, the spiritual condition. A sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, but also of wickedness. The spiritual darkness that hovers over people. This whole area is people who walked in darkness. That was their life. It's almost like the whole land just had this deep, dark shroud over it. And so that people wander around without being able to see. The Bible uses this metaphor of darkness all over the place. Listen to a few examples from the New Testament. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were one time of darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk in the light. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness. 1 Peter 2.9 says, Jesus called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First John 1 John 1.6 says, if we, have, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We could go on. There's more verses I could mention. You get the idea. Darkness is the opposite of spiritual light. Darkness is what we were before Christ. It's, it's the natural man apart from salvation. When he walked in his sins, he walked in Darkness. That's this land. A state of unbelief and rebellion against God. They may not have known it. In fact, those who walk in darkness sometimes don't realize they're walking in darkness. It's like a person who has never seen and, and may not realize that what the world is like out there. All they've ever experienced is the darkness. In fact, that's the state of our world. And by the way... That was the state of every one of us. If you know Christ as Savior, before you came to know him, you walked in darkness. That's what the Bible says. I guess the question we ought to confront is, are you walking in darkness today? There are many people who may even faithfully attend a church who are yet in darkness because they've never had their eyes open to the truth. The Bible talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The the God of this age has blinded the the minds of those who believe not. That the light of the glorious gospel would shine unto them. See, that's what you need. the, The light of the gospel shining into that heart. So it's described here as darkness, but also as distress. Man's spiritual condition is one of distress. Anxiety. Unsettled uncertainty. Does that sound familiar? Maybe from experience, maybe from just observation of our world. People are walking around with this unsettled uncertainty, this distress about life. Restlessly seeking purpose and meaning, but never finding it. Always looking, but never able to grasp what it is. That's how people felt in Isaiah's day. We need a message. We need something to make sense out of life. And look at where they looked. Go back to chapter 8, verse 19. Isaiah says, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So people have gotten to the point where they were saying, we need to to make sense out of life. Let's go talk to the, the mediums. Let's consult the dead to try and make sense of it rather than looking to their God. Again, perfect picture of our world today. We were driving up uh, I 65 um, on Wednesday, or Friday, I guess. Friday, we were driving up, and um, right there, a big billboard as we were passing uh, near Seymour, Indiana, big sign that says Seymour Psychic. You know, come in and, and have your fortunes read or whatever. Uh, and it's not just that, it could be a plethora of things, but people are looking for something, some message, something to give them hope, something outside of themselves. And never finding it. They're in distress. Finally, he talks about death in this passage. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness. And he describes them as those who dwell in the shadow of death. Same phrase, by the way, that's used in Psalm 23. Those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is both spiritual death, but also the ultimate, which is physical death. In which this life ends and a person's hope, if they've not trusted in Christ, is gone. I oftentimes thought of this verse when I was living on the kibbutz in Galilee. I thought of this phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. Because I would look out my window and I had a spectacular view, first of all. Um, you'd look out and there was the Sea of Galilee right in front of you. Um, and yet, beautiful surroundings, beautiful place, wonderful people. Yet, many of them walking in darkness, many of them spiritually dead. Because they didn't know and they rejected Christ. And that's our world today. Shrouded in darkness. Spiritually dead. This is the darkness that's, that's around us everywhere you go. I was reading earlier this year from the book South by Ernest Shackleton. It's about Shackleton's voyage. It's his recollections of it. And if you know the story, Ernest Shackleton was an explorer and was going to reach the South Pole and he took a ship called the Endurance with a a crew of men and they were going to make it to the South Pole. Unfortunately, they got stuck in an ice flow and the Endurance had to be abandoned in the ice. Eventually, it was crushed by the ice. The, The survivors of the ship were now on foot with just a couple of lifeboats. They hiked their way to an island where Ernest Shackleton and a few of his men sailed off to get help. It's an amazing story of survival and endurance. Nevertheless, while they were in the South Pole, they were there during what's called the Polar Night. And this is when you have months of darkness. And this is how one biographer stated it. In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the Polar Night. It is a return to the Ice age, no warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men accustomed to it can fight it off its effects, and it has driven some men mad. The darkness, and that's the darkness that shrouds our world. It's a spiritual darkness. Hopeless completely without warmth or light. So what, what hope is there? Well, look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We see here also the coming of the light. The, the coming of the light. What dispels the darkness? What gives light to those who walk in darkness? Well, it's what we celebrate at Christmas. The light that dawned upon the shepherds in the Bethlehem field, In a sense, it was a proclamation that the light has now come in the person of the Lord Jesus. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And it's the light that would light the entire world. It's the king who was placed in a manger, the Emmanuel of Isaiah 714. Now, some of this prophecy may yet be future, but it certainly has dawned in the coming of Christ. In fact, the, the Gospels in, in Matthew chapter 4 quotes this very passage and explains why Jesus ministered in Galilee. Why, why did he make his home in Capernaum? Well, the Bible says to fulfill these words, which is this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So in other words, the people who were the first to experience the anguish of defeat and the, the tyranny of the Assyrians were the first ones to hear the gospel message. Light dawned upon them. Those people, they didn't know it, but they were walking in darkness, saw the miracles of Jesus firsthand. They saw his life and ministry. What an awesome thing that would have been. The light has dawned. And listen to what the Bible says about it here in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, what does this light produce? The Bible tells us first the light would bring joy, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So it's the joy of harvest. The joy of victory. He he mentions both of those here. So it brings joy. An abundant joy. Not only that, it also brings liberation. Verse 4. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So this light that comes is going to bring joy and it's going to bring liberation from their enemies. The the staff and the yoke that's upon them will be broken off and they will be set free. He says here, as in the days of Midian, Midian, the, the great defeat brought about by Gideon. Remember Gideon and his 300 men who completely routed the Midianites. It'll be joy like that day. It'll be liberation like that day. This would have been a very powerful message to the Jews because they lived under enemy oppression all the time. First the Babylonians, well, first the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans, all had their turn ruling over Israel. So what a great promise that this Redeemer is going to come and liberate us. Let me also say this. The liberation that the Messiah brings is not just that physical liberation. It is that, but it's also spiritual. And that's what the, again, the Jews rejected. No, we're okay spiritually. Just give us deliverance from Rome. That's all we want. Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, your righteousness must exceed all of this. The hope they they needed was to have their sins forgiven. They didn't want that. They wanted the liberation. Finally, though, there's also peace that comes with the light. In verse five, every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garment that's rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Now, this verse is kind of weird because you're like, this is Christmas. Why are we talking about garments rolled in blood and war and all that? What he's saying is the garment rolled in blood is going to be burned. We're going to do away with the, the things of war. It's the same thing Isaiah says elsewhere where he says they will beat the plowshare or the swords and spears into plow- plowshares and pruning hooks. It's that the implements of war will be forgotten, cast aside. This light is coming and it's bringing joy and liberation and peace. That light was coming in the person of Christ. What a, what a joyful, that's why when you think about Christmas, All the joy, the joy of the shepherds, the joy of Simeon and Anna in the temple, the joy of the wise men in finding the star and coming to see the baby, it's because this light had finally dawned. The first rays were beginning to gleam in Bethlehem. I already talked about the polar nights. And what a deep darkness that is. I read a little account from a woman who was a photographer living within the Arctic Circle, this time in the North Pole. Uh, And she talked about how people during that polar night would anticipate the coming of the sun. They would mark it on the calendar. They would count the days like you were waiting for Christmas or a holiday. You know, count the days until that's the day the sun is supposed to come up. In fact, on the day and I read this elsewhere that on the day that it was predicted the sun would rise, people would go out early, the high place, and look for the first rays of the sun. After months of darkness, people would celebrate and hug one another when the sun would rise. That's the joy. That's what you should think about when you think about the coming of Christ. Light has come. Here's the question: What will bring this light? What are we talking about here? We've seen the gloom of darkness, the coming of the light. But what brings the light? It's the birth of a child. And this, if, this, if this verse were not so familiar to us, it would be shocking. The problem is everybody knows Isaiah uh, 9, 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Do you realize what an anticlimax that is? There's going to be light coming and and liberation and peace and joy, and it's all coming through a baby. It's like you would expect it to be through a mighty warrior or a great king or something like that, but it's a child that's born. That's what's so shocking about it. A child will come. Not a hero of epic proportions, at least not yet, but it's going to dawn in the coming of a child. You notice, by the way, it begins with four. Four unto us a child is born. It's explaining what's going to bring all this. What's going to cause war to cease? What's going to cause joy to abound? The coming of a child. These two statements, I believe, are in parallel. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's saying the same thing. And the government will be upon his shoulder. So he will be a ruler, even though he is a child, and, and he will be born a child, but he will eventually rule over all things. In fact, we'll see that again in verse 7. Let me highlight this, though. This is what we need to talk about. And hopefully I won't take too long because I've already used up most of my time. There are four names given to this child. And we could preach a whole sermon on each of these names. Maybe we will someday. But I'm going to go through them quickly. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And each of these speak... ...to who he will be. Uh, That's the thing about in the Bible with names. Names were oftentimes more than just a designation for somebody. Today, your name is just, that's what we call you. In fact, a lot of parents today just make up names... ...or like combine names to create new ones. But in the Bible times, names oftentimes were indicative... ...of some characteristic of the person. And so these four names that are given to this child are meant to build upon one another and show us what, who is this child? What's he going to be like? Who, who will he be? Well, first thing is he will be a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now you read that, and uh, you might think to yourself, and, and the picture we might get in our mind is that of a professional therapist. Because that's, that's what in modern times we come to think. You know, a counselor, it's somebody you go to and you lay on their couch and you talk about your childhood or whatever, you know, secrets from your past. Uh, that's not really what's in view here. In fact, we need to take both words and, and think about them for a second. First of all, wonderful. Some people will even try and separate wonderful from counselor and make them two different names. I think they go together. He's a wonderful counselor. The Word wonderful here is an interesting one and it's worth talking about. Because when we say wonderful, we use it like we use a lot of other words, like awesome, you know. No, it's not really awesome, but we just use terms. Like you'll probably come to me next week, I'll ask you, you know, how was your Christmas? And you say, Oh, our Christmas was wonderful. Okay, I'm sure it was, but it's not wonderful like this, okay? Because this word indicates and refers to something which requires God as an explanation. It refers to something which requires God as an explanation. In other words, it's something that can't be explained any other way than God did it. So this person, this child, cannot be explained. And his role cannot be explained other than God has done it. The theological work of the Old Testament says that this refers to things that are beyond human capabilities. So he is a counselor that is beyond what humans are able to counsel. Now, counsel, you think of somebody... Giving good advice. Really, what do you go to for a, to a counselor for? You're looking for answers, right? You need an answer to a question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna consult with someone, I'm gonna get counsel. Uh, I'm, I'm going through some difficult thing and I, I want some help. I want some answers. So this child who will be born will be the wonderful counselor. In other words, he he's got the answers. He knows the answers. Just a few chapters later, in Isaiah 11, the Bible says of this same person, the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord will rest upon him. Remember that verse we read back in chapter 8? People consulting wizards and mediums? You don't need to consult them. The the wonderful counselor has the answers. He is the answer. This is what I see Looking out at our world, people in darkness, flailing around, looking for an answer, but never coming to the, the wonderful counselor. The only place the answer can be found. He's also called Mighty God. Mighty God. El Gibor in, in Hebrew. Some people try to make it, say he was a mighty warrior of some kind, but I think it's undeniably Mighty God is the right translation. The one who's born in the manger and and placed there is God Almighty, capable of anything and everything. The one who's placed in the manger is the one who created the worlds. He's the one who spoke and, and sent the flood. He's the one who performed mighty signs and wonders and brought Israel out of Egypt. He's the one who does Wonders. He's mighty. He is almighty. That means whatever problem, whatever challenges, whatever difficulties you face, the mighty God is able. Nothing is too difficult for him. He's also called Everlasting Father. This also deserves some attention because it may seem on first reading that Isaiah is confusing the persons of the Trinity. After all, isn't Jesus, the child, God the Son, not God the Father? After all, uh, don't we understand there's a difference between God the Father and God the Son? I think there's a fairly easy answer to this question, and that is, he is a father in relationship to his people. Uh, In other words, in relationship to the Father, that is God the Father, Jesus is Son. But in relationship to his people, Jesus is their father. So let me just explain. And anytime you try and use an illustration about the Trinity, there's always going to be something you run into. So take it for what it is. Nevertheless, in relationship to my father, I will always be a son. He will always be my father. That relationship is not going to change, okay? I am always in relationship to him, son. Now, in relationship to my children, I am their father. And see, I'm now speaking of a different relationship. And the Bible says He will be everlasting Father. He's talking about in relationship to His people, not in relationship to God the Father. He is an everlasting Father. That's talking about His fatherhood. He He's a forever Father, if you will, to His people. And oh man, there's there's so much I would like to share about that. But we have got to keep moving because He's also called the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. And peace is something that uh, we all need, right? And peace is sometimes a poor translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Because shalom is peace, yes, but it's much more than that. It talks about wholeness or completeness. It's when everything is as it should be. Whether that's in relationships or in the world or in your home or wherever. Shalom is, is wholeness. It's when things are what they should be. And I know, you know, this year is a little different, of course, because everything's different this year. But at Christmas time, there's family gatherings and people get together. And it's pretty obvious when there's peace and when there's not, when there's shalom and when there's not, right? Because you go to that family get together and there's that one weird uncle that nobody knows what he's going to say. And so everybody's kind of on pins and needles because, you know, you don't know what's going to come out. Or there's that one cousin that hasn't talked to his mom in years And they're not on the best of terms. And everybody gets together in the same house. And it's like, it's a little little bit of tension in the air. Uh, That's not shalom. Shalom is when things are in harmony. It's when that family gets together. And there's nothing but love to be shared between them. See, the prince of peace is the one who brings peace. He is peace. And there is no peace apart from him. So all the searching for peace and all the praying for peace and all the desire for peace, if it's not coming to Jesus, then it's not going to be found. He's the prince of peace. Uh, There's a whole lot more we could say about those names. But let me bring this message to a conclusion. I think there's a couple of things we ought to note here about darkness and about the coming of the light. First, this dark world needs Jesus. I think that's something we can say resoundingly from this passage. This world is in darkness. In in every sense of the word. Flailing around looking for that answer, but never finding it. So my hope for this message is that the truth of the light and the coming of Christ will just ring in your heart anew and realize, yes, that's what this world needs. And I, I, I think all of us are agreed. I think all of us knew that when we came in here. But let it ring in our heart again in the sense of, we say, this world needs Jesus. And I want to be used to take that message wherever I go. Because the world's not getting better. It's not, gonna, it's not likely to find the light on its own unless the Lord opens their eyes. Let us be those who bear that light to the world. You know, we ought to be reminded today of that desire to make the light known. To hold forth Christ as the hope that the world doesn't even know it's looking for. It says in the the prologue to John's gospel that the light has come and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, they don't even know what they're looking for. This dark world needs Jesus. But let me also highlight this. We need Jesus in our dark times. Because, yeah, there's darkness out there. But I think we'd all recognize we go through dark times too. When despair and and hopelessness seem to overtake us. When challenges arise and we feel just discouraged. And maybe you felt that for a part of this year. Nothing is going the way I wanted it to. Nothing is going as I planned. It's, I just feel like the wind has been taken out of my sails. I feel like everything that ha- could go wrong has gone wrong. I feel like there's, there's just not a lot of hope, not a lot of encouragement for me. I felt like I'm kind of in a dark place. Well, then what you need is the Savior. What you need is Jesus. He is that light. And as the world looks for hope, yeah, they might try and celebrate Christmas early this year. They might try and throw up some decorations to try and take their mind off of all the awful stuff they see on the news. But there's no reason, if you know Christ today, that you can't walk out of here with a heart glowing with hope and joy. Because he's come. He has come. And hope is ours. Does the light